This whole thing was started because the detectives pestered my children. I wouldn't have treated them that way. Let Christy heal. She may be the only person who is ever going to exonerate me. If I'd shot my own kids, I would have done a good job of it. I would have waited until they died, and then I'd have cried crocodile tears. That is a quote from Diane Downs. This is Becky. This is Jen. And this is Too Close to Home. Oh, I just think about her face because I've seen the interviews with her. Yeah. She was a very pretty woman, too, if you look at her pictures from when oh, she yeah. was younger. But just the, the ballsiness. Mm, yeah. I thought we would change it up and go with a woman. We haven't done a woman yet. Yes. So want to kind of take up, take a little bit of the slack off all the men. And I mean, even though they're mostly to blame. They are. So I'm going to change up the way I do this story a little bit, and we're going to start with the heart of the crime. So I'm going to go ahead and dive in here. On May 19, 1983, Springfield, Oregon Police Department was advised by McKenzie Hospital that there was a gunshot victim, victims who had arrived at the hospital. Two nurses rushed out to the entrance of the ER where there was a woman yelling for help. There was a red car outside and a woman standing outside the car. The woman yelled, do something. Someone just shot my kids. The woman was 27 years old, Diane Downs. Her three children, Christy, eight, Cheryl, seven, and Danny, three, were in the car covered in blood. They had been shot point blank. They said the woman was calm, not crying, and appeared in control. The nurse found two children in the back seat. A doctor came out. He grabbed the young boy and carried him in. The oldest child was in the front seat on the floorboard. They immediately found out that the little girl on the floorboard had already passed. The little girl in the back was taken to another room by the nurses. The staff was immediately concerned for the mother, and they found a receptionist. They asked the receptionist to take the mom to the side to comfort her, find out more information. Diane had a gunshot wound to her forearm, and her arm was wrapped in a beach towel. The receptionist cleaned Diane's bloody arm, and she started asking her questions to find out more information about the shooting. Diane initially said that she wasn't sure where the shooting had taken place, but she was sure that she could find it again. She spoke with a flatness and no expression. They naturally assumed she was kind of in a shock-like state. Diane told them that she went to a friend's house in Marcola, and they were headed home. She said the kids and her were laughing, joking in the car on the drive home. She said she had turned down an old abandoned road, and she had seen a man standing in the middle of the road, and he looked like he needed help. So, of course, a mother alone with three children driving down a deserted back road is going to stop and eye for a strange man. It's my first thought every time. <laughs> Me too. Mike. You see that sketch guy? Let's do it. Let's see what he needs. So she pulled over. She offered assistance. She got out of the car, walked over to him, offered assistance. He immediately demanded the keys. She told him, are you kidding me? He walked over, reached in the window, and just started shooting the kids. So now we're going to give a little bit of backstory on this Diane Downs. It's just like, <laughs> there are so many that. things that I'm like, bitch, what? The, no, no, no. First of all, I ain't going to get out of my car for nobody. Uh-uh. No. I'm going to be nope. cracking that shit about an inch. Be like, what you want? And that's if you if get that. me stuck in, in a red light and you trying to use no choice, your mystery water to clean my windshield off. Okay. Oh, God. That happened to me the other day going to the VA. We're not even going to relive that. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, that's when, like, just, I'm going to stop my car, leave my young children in there, and I'm going to walk to this stranger. Get out of the car. Walk to him. And be like, you're kidding. No. And then he's just going to walk up from you and go shoot your three kids. Like, please, you tell me a little better story. You just walk, just walk by. He just walk by you like, mm-hmm. you just going for a stroll. Mm-hmm. <laughs> tell me about Diane Downs. So Diane Downs was born 8755 in Phoenix, Arizona. Diane was always described as being very intelligent. She actually bordered on genius level when she was IQ tested. She was always very pretty, but not very popular in school. She grew up with a father who was very strict and harsh, and he worked in the post office. When Diane was only 12, her father began to molest her. This is when Diane started to begin to confuse pain and pleasure. The pain that was associated with the molestation, but then at times she would have pleasure, which is a normal thing that, like, I don't they, know any they other don't way talk than to say it. accidentally happens. Your body still 
just like responds when, in a certain yeah. way. Just like when boys are molested and they still become erect, they feel like that means they enjoyed it, but it's not. It's just the body's reaction to those situations. It's our lizard brain doing yeah. like response to stimuli to, and to breathe, like to. So she started beginning to confuse pleasure and pain. She grew up to have many psychological issues. And at the age of only 13, she attempted suicide for the first time by cutting her wrist. Her parents basically acted like it didn't happen. Didn't I even mean, bandage her up. Didn't Jesus. even speak to her about it, basically. And she admitted they were very superficial. It was more of like an attention sinking, but they damn sure did not give her any attention about it. And she said her father ignored it altogether, probably because he knew he was the cause of it. Yeah, he's like, well, this is just the unfortunate fallout. <laughs> right. As a child, Diane was never allowed to cry. Whenever she cried, she was gotten onto. So she would begin to laugh in place of crying. And this is something that would carry over into adulthood. And you will see some of this when we talk later about the trial. Diane met her future husband, Steve Downs, when she was only 15 years old. They went to high school together. He was tough and rebellious. If people talked across to Diane, he would fight them. He was very protective of her. And she's seen him as everything her parents weren't oh i can see that yeah so i mean like that history of like that happens to girls a lot you know when they're neglected and they get some attention from somebody that gives them this crazy amount of attention Mm -hmm. and they're like yeah sign me up whatever and you know she attempted suicide and her parents ignored it but this guy you could talk cross to her and he was gonna box people's ears in for it you know and pay Mm -hmm. attention and she said that she literally said they were the opposite of them. So she figured he must be what is good and right. And it's kind of sad when you look back to think that both of them was fucked up. But you couldn't even see that because no. of how illy raised you were. On 11-13-73, she married Steve Downs after she ran away from home. She went to Arizona, ran away with him. Only two weeks into the marriage, she said she knew a mistake. It was a mistake to marry him. She claimed she was abused by him after they got married and that she did not feel loved by him at all. So what do most women do in an abuse situation when they don't have no parents to love them? They feel like their husband don't love them. They have some babies to love them. They have some babies to love them. And that's exactly what she did. She said she decided to grow her own love. Which is, I know, very sad. We're starting this one out real tough. Yeah. So she threw away her birth control. She Threw it away. Her husband thought she was on it, and she got pregnant. Christy was her first child, born 10774. She said that Christy was easy. Oh my God, that's freaking me out because that's Camilla's birthday, 107. Is it? Yeah. She said Christy was easygoing, happy baby. Diane said she instantly felt what it was to be loved. She loved this child. This child was everything that you could imagine that you would want in a child. So with her faltering marriage and only sense of love from her child, she got pregnant again. This time she had Cheryl on 110.76. Cheryl was no Christy. Oh. She said Cheryl came out into the world kicking and screaming, and she kept that attitude up. She was not an easy-tempered child. She was not an easy child, and Diane did not feel That's basically what child. my mother says about me, so. <laughs> but I mean, look how good you turned out. I mean... Ace, baby, ace. So after Cheryl came in, Diane said, eh, I don't want no more babies. So her and Steve both decided between we don't really like each other, we don't got a lot of money, and this second baby wasn't what we hoped it'd be. Yeah. Well, Steve wasn't as much of an ass as Diane. Because this is where you start to see Diane's side come out. Mm -hmm. Because she didn't really like Cheryl at all. And I don't like that. But I digress. So... And Diane literally said, I did not want to risk having another child like Cheryl. That's why she didn't want to have any more kids. She did not want to have another child like Cheryl. Yeah. How many more babies your mama have after you? One. She risked and, having and, another Jennifer. And she risked having another one, and uh, this one turned out to be way cooler. So <laughs> See? So Steve went and had a vasectomy, but Steve did not go to his follow-up appointments. Of course. So Diane became pregnant for a third time. They both decided, "Eh -eh." based on the above reasons, they couldn't really afford it, and she did not want another Cheryl. She went and had an abortion. 
So, which is no judgment. On no her, judgment. You know, I am you. You do so you, baby. Like your body, your choice. Yeah, hundred percent. Right, right. And I don't care why you do it. I know I'm gonna get some hate for that, but I really do believe it's your body. It's your decision. You know. Uh, just don't do that late term Diane Downs abortion, okay? Well, she didn't do it late term. Late term, as in they were alive. Later, oh, you know. yeah. Oh, but late, late. Sorry, mom. <laughs> so, but <laughs> I'm totally distracted by that. Okay, back on topic. Back on topic. <laughs> so she went and had the abortion. After she had the abortion, her and Steve, their problems kind of even went more haywire. She would leave her husband here and there. She was constantly having affairs, bopping other dudes, doing her thing. And then all of a sudden, two years after the abortion, she became obsessed over this child she lost. She gave it a name. She decided it was a girl. And she decided she was going to have another child to replace this child that she lost. Yeah. So she went and asked Steve to have his vasectomy reversed. And he said, nah. So she decided and straight up told him, I'm going to find somebody else to get me pregnant then. And I don't know the if, balls. if he didn't like take her serious or what, but that's exactly what she did. She had an affair with 19-year-old Russ Phillips. She became pregnant and gave birth to Stephen Downs. She named him after her husband on 12-29-79. What did bro do about this? Hold up. <laughs> what, are, what did old Steve do? They said... So my main source is uh, Small Sacrifices by Anne Rule. It's a book that she wrote. Love some Anne Rule. Yeah. And she narrated the book. I listened to the Audible. <laughs> um, Shout out. Initially, Steve was really upset and basically like, I'm not going to have anything to do with this kid. But then when the child was born, Steve instantly was attached to this child and took him in as his own. Basically, like, this is my kid. Yeah, that did lead to this. So some articles I read said he found out this wasn't his kid, but Anne Rule's book straight up said Diane told him. And obviously he had a vasectomy. He knew it wasn't his child, so there wasn't right, a question yeah. of infidelity. Because I'm knew. sure after Cheryl, like, they went and got that shit check, check. You know what I'm saying? Right. After he had the, she had the abortion, then he went back to the clinic because he thought oh, she that's was right, being, yeah. uh, in, uh, unfaithful then. And they were like, bro, nah, this didn't take and You never came back for your appointments. But she was being unfaithful too, but I digress. Um, <laughs> So he got it clip, clip, snipped, fixed, and he was good after that. So he knew from the jump this wasn't his child. But when Stephen was born, How fucked he loved up him. was the time that we were like, you know what? Girl. That's what ancestry DNA is happening. Exactly. Was, I'm saying it's it's busting everybody out. There is so many unidentified paternity. Oh, yes. Like, like oh, yeah, that's my, we got this, did it? And then ancestry through DNA says, you are not the father. <laughs> <laughs> in April of 1980, Diane watched an episode of the Donahue show. I don't know if you remember the Donahue show. Yes. I do. <laughs> and it was all about surrogacy. And all there was a man and woman on there. They couldn't have their own child and they were seeking a surrogate. And all of a sudden, Diane decided, that's what I want to do with my life. <laughs> so she sent a letter to a surrogacy clinic, filled out an application to become a surrogate. And she knew that she would be paid $10,000. And she figured this was her way out for a new start at a life to get away from Steve, this unhappy marriage. So she sent a letter. They sent her back. They're like, come on down. They sent her a plane ticket. She flew out there, and she failed her psych evaluation. Oh, surprise. But they said that she showed some narcissism, some things like that. But they actually failed her because they did not believe that she would surrender the baby when she had it. And that oh, was yeah. their biggest concern. So they sent her to have a second psych evaluation. And they said the same as the first. But as is in the 80s, they accepted her into the program anyway. <laughs> you know what? We need babies. <laughs> Come on down. Just she might. She might. you're going to give that baby away. Don't. on her. <laughs> I am not crossing my fingers behind my back right now. <laughs> right? <laughs> so in the meantime, while she was. So they said, yeah, you're accepted, blah, blah, blah. we got to do this paperwork. In the meantime, Diane was sleeping with everything all over town. I bet she would, girl. They said she was notorious for just pawning her kids off on people, or she'd just leave them at home. Oh, my God. And she would leave the oldest one, who was like seven, in charge of the other two. 
Well, they were probably like five. I didn't write down their ages. It was like five, three, and 18 months. Ooh. Yeah. Five-year-old totally in charge. Totally. <laughs> totally. Pinnacle of responsibility. 100%. So when I started leaving my kids home alone. <laughs> I mean, don't you? JK, guys. JK. <laughs> yeah, please don't take that serious. Yeah. We pawn them up on our husbands, obviously. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually uh, she decided enough was enough, and she asked Steve for a divorce. They split up, but he told her that she had to pay him $5,000 to buy him out of the home so she could stay in the home. So Diane went to one of her side pieces, got five G's from him, paid it to Steve, and she got the house. Immediately, she moved, his name was Mac, into the home. Only two weeks after her husband moved out. So Mac moved in. Daddy Mac. Mac. (laughs) Yeah. So Mac worked with her at the post office. She worked as a mail carrier at this time. It's a whole new uh, meaning to going postal. Mm -hmm. Mac said she was not a good mother. He said at work, she was fun, she was vivacious, she was easygoing, this girl that just everybody loved. And he said the second that you got her home, a, a switch flipped. He said she'd call the kids. So he moved in there with his two kids with her, and she had her three. And he said it was night and day, that when they got home, she'd call the kids vulgar names. She was ugly to them. Just, he said it was bad. So he, he even said she frightened him. Which I frighten my husband in front of the time. <laughs> there should be a l- modicum of fear for, but not for that, so but not that like that. Hiding from us. Yeah. Or worried about the welfare of their the children. children. <laughs> JJ does not worry about that at all. No. So he didn't last there, last living with her long. He moved out, quit seeing Diane. And this whole time he was waiting for like the five grand back that he borrowed her. She didn't give it to him. Uh, what? No. Right. Then in September of 1981, they called Diane. They said, come on down. You can be a surrogate. <laughs> so she went down there. She got pregnant on her first um, session of implantation in vitro. On May 7th, 1982, she delivered that baby. And she said momentarily that she had a moment of thinking of not giving up the baby, but that it quickly went away and she did surrender the child. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? No. Having been born as a surrogate. Like surrogacy. But at least she don't share any DNA with her. Even then, like, whoa. Yeah. Diane Downs. Yeah. So she got her 10 grand for being a surrogate. She did pay Mac back his $5,000. That's honest of her. She took her family on a vacation. As we would do. Right. And she put money down on a new mobile home. This is when she felt like, and when it should have been, a brand new start for her. This is when... You literally got all this money because ten grand in the eighties. Well, ten lot. grand's a lot now, but it's a lot, lot. I remember then. my dad giving me ten dollars, and that would fill up his truck full of gas. Oh yeah, when I started driving in like ninety eight, ninety nine, ten dollars filled up my tank. And you could fill up your gas tank before paying. Yes. Do you remember that? Yes. God, I forgot that was even a thing. Yes. <laughs> I used to drive a bunch of friends home, and I'd make them all give me like two bucks, and that would fill my tank up for the week because it would be ten bucks, eight to ten dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Not now. No. Nope. Get you like two gallons. So Diane moved on to her next meal. Now, I want to go ahead and put a clarification thing out there. In Anne Rule's book, she refers to him as Lou Lewiston through the entire book. She never cites anywhere else that his name is anything else. But if you look him up on the internet, he has a whole different name. Hmm. A whole different name. So because my main source was her book and there's a lot of interviews with the detectives with her, I'm going to continue to use Lou Lewison because that's my main source. And I feel like most information I got from there was fairly uh, more accurate. Right. Than things I just randomly found on news stories and whatnot. Although he clearly has a different name. But just. and this book was written shortly after all this was done and she was sentenced so i think initially it was lou lewiston to protect his identity and then it came out at a later time oh that makes sense but we're gonna ride with it all right ride with it i literally found out like halfway through this that wasn't really his name and then i was like oh no we're just gonna if he's already got his identity that's right. i mean i'm sorry i'm not you rewriting start calling it. something else i'm gonna be like wait what who's the new character in here <laughs> so who's this guy 
So Lou was a married man who also worked at the post office. That's where she met her gentleman at. And he had fallen. I mean, that's where I would meet my gentleman, too. You know, right. (laughs) Diane had fallen hard for him. So when Lou was interviewed after the shooting, this is. They found out about him when they recovered Diane's diary, which she asked for them to go get out of her trailer. But, of course, they're going to take a little look at it. (laughs) It was mainly full of letters written to Lou that were returned. (laughs) Baby, take a sign. Baby, take a sign. (laughs) Baby, you are the red flag. (laughs) (laughs) So they called Lou in and they interviewed him. He said... That from the beginning, he told Diane he only wanted to fling. He was married. He said he would only spend Diane when her time with Diane when her kids were not around. He told her he never wanted kids, and he'd actually had a vasectomy at 21 years old, and him and his wife never had kids. It just was something he didn't ever want. Right. He said he didn't dislike children. He loved other kids, people's kids, playing with them, nieces, nephews, all that. He just didn't he see just it in his cards. Yeah. yeah. Didn't want it for himself. Too late into the fling, he said he realized Diane wanted more. He said on his birthday, he decided it was time to tell his wife because Diane was getting intense. Yes. <laughs> so he told her about the fair, told her he was going to break it off with Diane. But Baby, I done learned my lesson. This bitch is crazy. But what always happens, Shin, they always go back. For always go, they got to stay there in crazy. Exactly. So he admitted, I didn't stay long gone from Diane. And that he admitted he even told Diane a couple times he was going to leave his wife for her. I mean, every man will say that to get into somebody's panties. And it just strings them along, and it only creates more problems in the end. At one point, Lou did ask his wife for a divorce, and he moved into an apartment on his own. He'd have Diane over there, and one night when Diane was over there, she asked him, was he going to leave his wife? Was he going to, did he love her more? Diane Moore and Nora, that was his wife more. And he told her that he loved his wife more and Diane lost her shit. So Lou was like, I'm out. He left the apartment. He went back to his home. So Diane followed him there, banged on the doors all night, would leave, blow up the phone, come back. And that's when he was like, that was the point, sir. (laughs) Don't worry. He still went back again. God damn it, Lou. (laughs) I know. So... Diane figured at this point, like, he's done told me that he loves his wife more. He went back to her house. He is not actually going to leave. So she requested a transfer to the post office in Oregon where her parents lived. She requested this transfer mainly after her parents badgered her to go up there, too. She didn't have shit going for in Arizona. This is where she'd been living. So she told Lou that she was leaving, and Lou felt like she was just saying this, thinking he would go run after her and follow her. So two weeks before she left, Lou asked Diane to move into his apartment with him. Mm. You know, didn't give her any any idea that you thought there was something going on, right? It's very clear to her that you were never going to leave your wife. He told her he was sad that she was leaving. And then if this ain't so 1980s for you, he took his gold chain off, put it around her neck, and told her, this tells everybody that you're Lou's girl. <laughs> No, Girl, stop it, Mr. I had Teeter. To pause it and walk away, walk away. <laughs> you, Mr. Teeter, lay it down. You, my princess, baby. <laughs> and at some point, it never specified where. Um, they went and got matching rose tattoos too. Oh my god! So 1980s. So 1980s. We might not have had cameras that recorded Every what we did. Rose has its own. <laughs> But we did do stupid shit oh like rose God. tattoos and gold chains. And yes, we did. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. <laughs> That's just a little note for you. <laughs> the affair continued up until the day she left. He did say that once she left and he did not hear her talking in his head anymore, that his head finally cleared and he was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is for real over now. <laughs> he told her, I'm not coming to Oregon. And the fair was over. She continued to call him in Arizona, and he would have his coworkers tell her he's not here. She finally came back to Arizona to visit and return the gold chain. No, are you not loose girl anymore? <laughs> no. And that's when he told her again he wasn't coming to Oregon. This is she already I gave think- you the chain, bro. Why are you <laughs> nagging her? Why you gotta keep on? 
And this is where I, I feel like this was the pivotal moment in Diane's life. She came back. She gave him the gold chain. He said, I'm not coming. And he said these words. I just don't want to be a daddy. And he later said he still lives with regret to this day because he feels like he is responsible for what she did, even though he didn't know. And even though he didn't want kids, he said he would never want somebody to do that. And I I, I feel that. I feel that's probably yeah. truth, you know. And he said he just wishes that maybe he wouldn't have, like, harped so much that he didn't want to be a daddy because then she went and did that. Uh-huh. And he was like, he even said, like, he never meant it in an ugly way. That's, a lot, of, that's be... a lot of survivor's guilt, I bet. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. she was going to do it, whether it was him or not. Because he said that was their last conversation and that he didn't hear from her again until she called him to tell him that somebody shot her kids. Yeah. I just rolled my eyes so hard. Oh, That they almost rolled out of your head. Out of my goddamn head. Lou did say during his interview that when she left, she had a twenty-two in the trunk of her car. Lou said that he did believe that Diane was the one who shot her children and that he was afraid of her. He said... He believed that if she was found innocent, that she would try and kill his wife next. And if that didn't work to get him back, that she would kill him. I guess, you know, he started playing those situations like, I said I want to be a dad. She killed her kids. If I still don't go, she's probably going to kill my wife next and then kill me. I mean, yeah. And I mean, I get it. I, if she going to kill her own fucking kids, she kill everybody. We on that same wavelength, Lou. I feel, <laughs> I feel everything you, you feel. <laughs> um, you don't need to justify to us, Lou. <laughs> right? Shortly after Diane... Killed the children and she started calling him. Lou decided on his own that he was going to start recording the conversations with him and Diane. He said he felt like if she admitted to anybody what she did, it was going to be him. But he got a little too, like, obvious and Diane figured out he must be recording this. So then Diane started recording the phone calls, too. So, you know, that just came oh, But what's that going to do, though? Diane, it's already recorded. Why are you re-recording it? Girl, she goes off the rails. So at the time of the shooting, she had only lived in Eugene, Oregon for about seven to eight weeks. That ain't far from my mama. Shout out to Roseburg. (laughs) (laughs) Diane moved back there to be by her parents. Um, So we're back on the night of the shooting now. The first thing Diane did was tell them she wanted to call her parents. They said she started yelling on the phone what happened to her parents. And by this time, the children, Christy eight. Cheryl, seven, and Steve, three, had all been taken to rooms, and the doctors and nurses were working on their little baby bodies. Diane was told that Christy had had profound blood loss, her heart had stopped, and she needed surgery. Danny was at risk for paralysis, and Cheryl was already dead. At 10.48, only eight minutes after police received the call, they arrived at the hospital. While telling the police what happened, Diane seemed to be more concerned about the damage to her brand-new red car. The police began to ask Diane what had happened, and her story was already changing this point and beginning to fall apart. They first wanted to know where the shooting had occurred, and she started describing landmarks, acting as though she didn't know where she was when it happened, but that she was sure that she could lead them back. The police immediately began to realize that the shooting was outside of the Springfield city limits. The officer believed that he may have known where this was ha- had happened and asked Diane if they could go ahead and drive back where the scene was based on her giving them information so they could start looking, you know, immediately for somebody, for any evidence. So Diane agreed. As they were walking out of the hospital, a nurse came and stopped them and let them know that uh, Christy may not be alive when she returned. Christy was just like, oh, I mean, um, Diane was just like, okay, and continued to walk out the door. They said she seemed completely unfazed. She exited the hospital with the officer, passed her car, and said, I sure hope my car will be okay. Does it have any bullet holes in it? And that's a direct quote. I'm seething. I know. I had to take many breaks from this because it literally. So she drove with the officer. She guided him along the way, and they arrived at Old Mohawk Road, which was the scene of the shooting. When they were pulling up, the officer said she made a really random comment. I should have never bought the unicorn. The officer asked her what she was talking about. She said, I bought a brass unicorn. I had all of our names engraved on it. I never should have done that. What you mean, Diane? Right. 
So when they arrived, she said she now remembered that there was an icky yellow car there at the time. Officers immediately began searching the area in what would become one of Oregon's most massive criminal investigations. Because it was three kids. So people take that shit serious. Dick Tracy. Yes, ma'am. That was the real name of the detective, Dick Tracy. No. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Real name. And Doug Welch were the first detectives to interview Diane. They said she spoke rapidly, but that she did test negative for drugs or alcohol, and that she was very cooperative. They said she basically vomited words. Could you imagine being able to do that shit sober? Like, I'm not even imagining Mm -hmm. what it would be like to do it not sober, but like... Sober, sober. Like to... In a clear mind, not anything clouding it or pumping you up. You just bam, bam, bam. Mm-mm. No. I mean, my kids have pissed me off, but never to the point that I could ever do that to them. Like, no. No. Not anybody for that matter. I think it would be hard and even in a situation where you had to use lethal force against somebody, I feel like would be hard to do. Mm-hmm. Even if I don't know you and you're coming into my house, we easily so say, like, I blow them away, but I think to actually take a human life would be extremely hard. Oh, yeah. But to take the human life of somebody that you created in this world Ugh. and have literally seen every breath they've ever taken, nah. Nah, bro, that's not that's not my life. No. Not for me. I just... It's unfathomable. Yeah. That's why I think anybody that kills has to be somewhat crazy. When we say they're mentally sane, I'm like, are they though? Are they? <laughs> right? So they said that she vomited words. She nonstop talking. They said once they got her talking, she couldn't talk enough. They tested her hands for gunshot residue, but it was negative. She said they went to see her friend, Heather Pullard. After a brief visit, they headed home. She said they decided to do a detour, do a little sightseeing. But when she realized the children were sleeping, she turned around and headed towards Springfield. This is when she seen the man on the side of the road. I love how it's already, like, messing up because she was saying they were laughing and talking earlier. Yeah. And now they're sleeping. Exactly. See, I'm glad you caught that because the police did, too. Mm-hmm. The police did, too. That's what they're like. Wait a minute. Hey, hold up. Were you laughing or were you sleeping? And keep in mind, these police arrived only eight minutes after the call. And then they left shortly thereafter to go to the scene. So we ain't even talking a big time difference for you to get your story all and you're already messing it up. Yeah. Like you think you would have rehearsed that shit. Like this bitch came up on the fly. I don't want to be a daddy. All right. I got you, fam. (laughs) (laughs) So she said she got out. She asked, what's the problem? He jogged over to her, said, I want your car. To which she replied, you've got to be kidding me. The man stood outside the driver's door put his hand inside, and started firing a gun. When they asked, what did she do? She said she pretended to throw her keys in the bush because she wasn't going to let him take her car, too. And then he turned towards her, fired the gun at her twice, hitting her in the forearm. She then pushed him, kicked him, jumped past him, jumped into the car and drove to the hospital. Well, what about the keys, though? She didn't really throw them. She had hooked him on her finger and pretended to throw him, and the guy fell for it. That could be the dumbest goddamn criminal I ever heard of. <laughs> top <laughs> five, like, at least. It's like toddler shit. Least. Like, that's... Yeah. All my I can is like... My <laughs> like, When you pretend to throw the ball for your dog. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you're like, gotcha, little bastard. Where'd that goddamn tennis ball go? <laughs> yeah, that's what she did with him, and he fell for it. He went, oh. <laughs> So they asked her to describe him. She said he was white, maybe in his 20s, 5'9", dark hair, and a stubble of beard. And then she described his clothes. They asked her if she saw the gun and knew what kind it was, and she said no. They asked her if she owned any weapons, to which she said yes. She had a twenty two rifle on the shelf in her closet at home, and she signed a consent for them to search her car and home. When they asked, again, if she owned or possessed any firearms, she remembered she also had an old 38 special. I know how easy it is to forget. You know. She said she kept that in the trunk of the car. Oh, yeah, as one does. Yeah. So, this is when they started the search of Diane's home. They did find both guns that she said. They found her diary. Um, we go a little bit more into the search in a minute. Um, 
The next day, they interviewed Diane again. This time they told her they were going to record everything, and they said she was very hesitant when she seen the recorder, which, yeah, is always. Hey, you don't want to get trapped, baby. They said once again, when she spoke, she spoke nonstop. The story was the same as before, that they were sightseeing, and the children fell asleep. The man in the road, the man in the keys, shot the kids. She went into more details of the children's reaction to being shot. The same story, the man shoving and getting into the car and driving away, her flee. Mm-hmm. But she went into more about the kids dying. She talked about them drowning in their own blood. She talked about her Which, baby. You know, in a in a moment of craziness like that, how do you know? Like, yeah. You know, you weren't even in the vehicle. Yeah. For a good minute. So she talked about her baby boy in the back seat softly crying for his mama. I know. Very heartbreaking. When she started talking about Cheryl, that is when she first began to cry. But they said that she quickly chalked back the tears. Which some of that you have to give a little bit of a grain of salt because she did say in her family that she wasn't allowed to cry as a child. Mm-hmm. But that does carry over into adulthood, you know? I ain't gonna give her too much slack, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Only days later, the case began to change. They said they started to feel the description of the attacker did not speak truth. They also didn't believe that there was a man on Old Mohawk Road. So apparently this road, and my mom was actually telling me about this area because it's where she grew up at. It's very far off. It's very, very odd that you would go down this road. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like, oh, we're going to take that back road to, you know, avoid the freeway or the interstate. This was like an old cutoff. I don't know if, I mean, if you've grown up in the country, you all can imagine what I'm talking about when you say some old backcountry road. Like, this is like when I just want to get lost for the day. Yeah. And it would be very deliberate to take this road. Mm-hmm. You and have to, like, really know what you're doing. She says later she went down that road looking for a waterfall. But you would have known where you was going. Like, mm-hmm. but okay. They said it made no sense that there would be a random person uh, way out in this middle of the nowhere road just like walking, waiting Looking for somebody for to come along. Yeah. yeah. Because it was a very out-of-the-way area, which granted, That's we like, all know That's like, you know that, what? I hear L.A. is full of people, but let's go to Nebraska. Right? And, I mean, we all know that if you're going to attack someone or not, you want to do it on the off-beaten path, you know, like where they're the unbeaten path, whatever, you know. But you're not going to go there trolling for someone to come no. along when it's an area nobody frequents. That's not where you're going to go find your victim. That's where you're going to take your victim after you get them. Yeah, that's a different part. Like, no. Yeah, that's side. That's uh, the second part of the story, not the first part. Yeah. So they said it just didn't make sense that someone was just meandering around waiting for people to come along to carjack. The odds. It wasn't a, right. The odds were against them. And there were some small inconsistencies with her story. Initially, she said the man stood in the middle of the road and she walked up to him. The second time, she said he jogged up to her. As you said, first the kids were awake, then the kids were asleep. But they couldn't find a reason why she'd want to shoot her own children. This was the first time that they looked at her injuries. The detective specifically asked the doctor, if you were going to shoot yourself and you didn't want to do any damage, where would you shoot yourself? They said the doctor held up his arm and he pointed right to where Diane was shot. Yeah. Detective Pond went and visited Heather. This was the friend that she'd went and seen. The friend said that, yes, Diane had come and visited early in the evening, and she verified that she'd gone there for a visit, stayed for a little while, and went home. The detective then went to Downs Duplex, where she lived and where they had began doing the search. They said the home was very empty. There was no furniture besides a TV and a chair in the living room. There were only four pictures in the room, Two were of Diane. One was of some man. And then there were no pictures of the children. But they did find that brass unicorn statue. I bet you they did. They said it was engraved with engraved with the children's names and said, I love you, Mom. It was dated May 13th, 1983. Hmm. Remember, just a few days later is when the shooting occurred. They searched the room for her diary, which she had asked for them to find and bring to her. They said it was full of the letters 
All the letters except for one were addressed to Lou. This diary would later become evidence. They did find the 22 in the closet, like she said, with no signs of it being recently fired. They said it was full of dust and lint, and it definitely had not been fired. They found the 38 in her trunk, too, and said that thing barely even worked. So not both of those guns were ruled out immediately as mm-hmm. the guns for shooting the babies. Detective Doug Welch met with the father, Steve, who had come immediately as soon as he heard about the shooting because Steve was still living in Arizona. Steve told them that Diane had three guns. Mm-hmm. The two that she had told them about and that the police had found and another twenty-two not accounted for. The missing gun was Steve's, but he said that Diane would borrow it. He told police she knew how to use it. He had trained her how to use it. She had used it in the past. And they asked Steve if he thought that she would put a new man before the children. He said there was no way that Diane would die before she let anything happen to those children. <laughs> so while this is going on, the dad is coming in town. They're searching her duplex. They've already went out to the, the site. The kids are being worked on in the hospital. They've already notified the DA of obviously everything that's going on. So the DA, you know, they're all sitting around the office and they're speculating ideas. What do you think happened? These three kids were shot out on this road. Well, Fred Hugie, the assistant DA, Heard Howard Williams, one of the DA's investigators, say, I bet you anything the mom has a gunshot. And if I were to bet, I'd say it's right here. Yeah. My they, jaw just dropped. Sorry. Right. I was like, uh, uh. He well, said, wouldn't you know? <laughs> it wouldn't even kill you. Matter of fact, it wouldn't even hurt that much. Keep in mind, they have nothing outside of, hey, there's the shooting. Fred Hugie was slated to prosecute the next homicide in the county. When the prosecutor arrived to the hospital, both surviving children were in the ICU. The post-mortem exam of Cheryl showed that she had two gunshot wounds and they were both fatal. Cheryl had suffered a stroke and could not communicate. The prosecutor next spoke to Jim Pax. So this is the next day. Jim Pax is the expert in forensic science and he'd been up all night reviewing evidence. He processed the car. He found no gunshot powder residue outside the car around the windows. Um, No blood on the driver's side. He found gunshot powder in every section of the car except the driver's side. Early assessment of the blood pattern showed that someone did lean into the driver's side, just as Diane said, and fired the shots. About the only thing that she said that was true. So... In the next interview with Diane that she would willingly give to the police, Diane told Detective Welch that she remembered that she now knew the man that she encountered on the road Mm -hmm. the night of the shooting, but she had feared for her life, and she couldn't tell them who he was. When she came in later to review mugshot, she told the detective that the man who shot her and her children had mentioned her tattoo. So she didn't even know that she knew him until during the process of all of it, he said, I know you have a rose tattoo on your back. Hers was on her back. Lou's was on his arm. So she was like, he had to have known me. Nobody knew about him. So she said she was too emotional at the time to remember this. But all that had come back to her now. Mm. Welch asked her how fast had she been driving after the shooting to get to the hospital. She said she couldn't recall. She only knew she was driving fast enough to get there quickly, but slow enough not to go off the side of the road. What Diane didn't know is that in this meantime, a man named Joe Inman had seen her on the road that evening. He had happened to take that road, and he had taken it as a shortcut. I can't remember exactly why he took it, to be honest. But he said when he came up, he noticed there was a vehicle parked on the side of the road because it was the old abandoned road. He thought, this is weird that somebody's out here and they're just on the side of the road. Well, then he realized they were they were moving, but they were only moving going five to seven miles an hour. So he kind of followed from a distance. He said he was kind of waiting to see, like, is their car, like, in the process of breaking down and they're, they're about to run out of gas, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. He said he kind of followed them for a while but stayed back, and then all of a sudden they just took off. So Diane doesn't know this. 
Diane thinks she's been on this road because he stayed so far back that she never seen him. So the detective started intensifying the question, asking why the shooter would target the children, but they wouldn't take out Diane, who's clearly the biggest threat. Right. He then asked her, why would they shoot three kids and then still try to take your car with three injured kids in the car? I mean, it makes no... I'm going to steal your car with three kids in it. all the evidence. Yeah. That, no. So he also asked her, how did he manage to shoot three little children under the age of seven in their bodies, but only get you in the arm, who's a full-ass grown adult? That's Mm -hmm. a bigger target. She then said that she was going to find the man herself and bring him in because she knew who he was. Okay, I bet you will, baby. (laughs) Right? She now said he shot the kids then yanked her arm and shot it. He yanked her arm out and shot it and then said, now try to get away with this bitch. And then he just left. Yeah. Diane ended the interview, left the police station. She called back shortly thereafter, told them they had badgered her so much that she had a breakthrough and she knew the shooter's name, everything about him now. It all came back to her now and that she wouldn't tell them because she didn't believe they could protect her. She then started with all kinds of crazy details, all these rants, talking about uh, Steve wins this time. That was her ex-husband. Don't ask me what the hell he had to do with it. And then she hung up. That was the last time that she voluntarily went in and spoke to the police. This is when she started doing media interviews and trying to play the sympathy card. And we don't know how much they love that. On May 30th, the police approached Diane after finding her behavior stranger and stranger. And this is when she told him she wasn't doing enough talking to him no more. <clears throat> and they let her know she needed to appear in court. On May 30th, Paul Alton observed Diane visit Christy for the first time after the shooting. He said Christy had a look of fear when she seen her mother and immediately began to scream and cry. Every time Diane visited, she would whisper things in Christy's ear. Her visits were stopped shortly after because they said her visits literally caused Christy's blood pressure to rise so high that she would start having medical emergencies. And they told her, you can't come in anymore. If that ain't a fucking Red clear flag, sign, Jesus. Yeah. In June, Steve and Christy were moved from Diane's care. They were placed in foster care. Diane was not told where the children were placed and she was forbidden to see her children. Five days after moving in, Foster care, Christy started therapy. Initially, they said she was unable to recall any events, but then she started very adamantly stating, nobody was present but my family. Wouldn't say that her mom shot her, but she would just say, nobody was there that night but my family. Mm -hmm. Both children, Steve started attending therapy too, and they both started improving pretty quickly. We're going to talk about Steve's trip. In September, and then we're going to end it there until part two. <laughs> so their dad, Steve, made a trip down in September of 1983. So Steve was allowed to visit the kids, but Diane was not. Well, Diane was still playing her manipulation with the men, and she managed to talk Steve into letting her see the kids on his visit. Mm. So Steve called Diane and told her he was going to take them to the mall and that she could just show up to the mall and be sitting on a bench and at least she could see them from like across the way. Well, then he decided "Eh, that's too public. It's too much chance that somebody will see it. So he decided to take them to a park and told her if she wanted to show up, she could. But again, he, he was basically telling her like sit in the car and you can like see him. But this is Diane Downs. So as soon as she seen them, she jumped out of the car, ran over to Christy started hugging her, kissing her, telling her how much that she loved her. And then it must have been that crazy, crazy loving. She convinced Steve to let her take Christy for a drive alone. He waited for hours and hours and hours for them to return. He eventually went back to his hotel room. And he said that was when he really started becoming concerned and really started thinking that she had done it, and he was concerned that she went and killed her. Mm-hmm. He said he finally 
knew it was time for him to return the kids. She wasn't there, and he was genuinely afraid she did something. So he actually picked up the phone to call the police and basically tell on himself, and she pulled back into the hotel parking lot. He said Diane got out smiling, happy, and he was waiting, waiting, and finally Christy got out of the car. Ooh, I know. He said, um, Christy just came in. They, he had to immediately go turn the kids back in, so he never really got to question Christy on what happened for all those hours, and then he couldn't say anything else because he wasn't even supposed to take her to see Diane. Took her home to see uh, to the foster parents, and they said immediately there was a change in Christy. So they took her kind of like to emergency visit with her therapist, and the therapist said the same thing, like basically what the hell has happened. And? We're going to end it right there with Diane Downs visiting her kids because we got a lot more to cover. But oh, cliffhanger. Oh. We're going to get into next. We'll be coming up the grand jury hearings and then we'll get into the arrests. And it gets really good then. And I really like, sad. Well, really sad. I mean, it's been pretty sad already. <laughs> it's not been a sunshine <laughs> moment. I'll tell you that. It's not. It's very sad. So we're going to leave it there. I am enthralled. Like, and we're so gonna good. have some follow up too because my mom's best friend that she grew up with, her children attended school with Christy and Steve Downs. So we're gonna get a little inflection of what their life was like after all of this. So I'm excited, guys. Right, right. So in the meantime, you cool cats and kittens. Is that too uh, 2020? I guess. Uh, was that 2020? Yeah, I know. Two years ago. We are three years into this pandemic, baby. In the meantime, make sure you follow us on our socials. Go ahead, Jennifer, because you know them. I do. I know them right now. It is Too Close Podcast on Instagram and Too Close From Home Pod on Facebook. We have, you can listen to us anywhere you get your podcast just about. And if you have any ideas, any suggestions, or any of your own Too Close to Home stories, Get us an email. Send us an email to too close to home at yahoo.com. Yes, please send us some stories because I want to do like a listener's tells kind of episode where we can like read some of y'all's stories. We won't say your name unless you tell us that we can, of course. Then we'll give you a holla. Holla. <laughs> <laughs> and anything else we need to wrap up this episode with? Oh, I mean, I just can't wait till the next one. Me too. All right. So in the meantime, stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel. And don't bring it too close to home. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>